Let's turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 8. The Gospel of Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 33. Thus says the word of our Lord. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist. But some say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am. There, there's a double emphasis there in the Greek on you. Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. That's the reading of God's word. We have come now to a scene in the Gospel of Mark which brings all the previous stories that Mark has told, all the mighty deeds of Christ, all the authoritative teachings of Christ into a moment of convergence and reckoning. The purpose of every episode thus far has been to reveal to the reader two things about Christ who he is, and what he came to do. And now at the midpoint of this gospel, right as Mark transitions into the section of the book that portrays Jesus as Yahweh's suffering servant, these two things are brought to a head. We observe here a confession about who he is and a revelation about what he came to do. I've entitled this message, The Crux of Our Confession. The word crux made its way into the English language in the 18th century, and it originally meant something that puzzles or vexes. Later, it took on the meaning of that which is of central or pivotal importance. And both of these senses of the word are true in our text. It describes what is, our text describes what is of crucial import. What is of crucial import when it comes to the flow of the gospel narrative. And yet, the disciples are still somewhat perplexed and puzzled by it. In fact, the word comes into our language from Latin roots, and in Latin, crux means cross, as in the instrument of torture and death that Jesus was destined 
to face. The cross is of crucial importance. But the disciples, they're they're still perplexed about it. And yet, we use this word crux, right? To speak, for instance, of the crux of a matter. We use it in our common, everyday language. And we see in that that the semantics of the term itself are rooted, in fact, in the theology of Mark's gospel. And that gives us a clue of just how influential Mark's gospel has been and the history of Western thought down to the very fabric of our language. And this passage perhaps captures the sense of that more than any other. What we have before us is the first human confession that Jesus is Messiah in the Gospel of Mark. God the Father declared him to be the Son of God in chapter 1, verse 11. Demons have confessed him to be the Son of God throughout. But Peter's is the inaugural human confession of the whole narrative. And it's the first one that expresses the faith of a sinner in the person of the Savior. Peter's apostolic confession, then, is a prototype of the church's confession about Christ through the ages. And it thus has massive historical importance. This confession is the archetype and precursor to every legitimate confession of faith that the church has ever penned throughout the centuries. And it captures the heart and essence of the confession that constitutes the distinctive glory of Christianity, whereby it is distinguished from every other religion and every other faith tradition in the world. A.W. Tozer once said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He explained, The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. So said Tozer. But based on our text in Mark, we could modify what Tozer said a bit and put Christ in the place of God. Not to the exclusion of the Father, but included, of course, in the Godhead alongside him. The most important thing about us is what comes into our minds when we think about Christ. Our worship is pure or base, and our faith is legitimate or illegitimate as we as worshipers entertain high or low thoughts of Jesus Christ. What comes into our minds when we confess the person and work of Christ, that is the acid test. That is the conclusive test of the validity and authenticity of our faith. 
And so let's explore the details surrounding Peter's confession. And as we do, I want to walk us through five features of this passage, beginning, first of all, with the setting. The setting. Verse 27. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. Stop there. We saw last week that Jesus will shortly be heading south into Judea, chapter 10, verse 1, and then into Jerusalem, 1022. But here he departs from Bethsaida on the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee and travels 25 miles north to Caesarea Philippi, which lay in a lush, well-watered region at the foot of Mount Hermon. Hermon is the largest mountain peak in all the land of Israel. It rises over 9,000 feet in altitude. And it's so, so large, in fact, that it remains snow-capped throughout the entire summer in Palestine. And so this is at the northern reach of the territory of ancient Israel, would have been located in the region of East Manasseh, bordering on Syria. And this would have been at least a full day's journey for Jesus and his disciples. And that, of course, raises an important question. Why did Jesus go so far out of the way, seemingly, with the sole purpose of eliciting this confession from Peter? He's, he's traveling south. Why, why did he go 25 miles north in a, what ultimately would constitute a 50-mile round trip of additional travel? Well, the reason is because Caesarea Philippi provided the perfect cultural and sociological context for this confession to be as meaningful as it possibly could. And I don't have time to break all of this down for us today, but let me just give you a glimpse of why this place provides the ideal context for this confession to shine like a glorious diamond against a black velvet backdrop. Since Old Testament times, this place, this very place, was a center for the worship of Baal. Most people say Baal but it should be pronounced Baal, the Canaanite deity. He was the Canaanite god of fertility, rain, and storms. Baal was a demonic deity who posed the greatest threat to the worship of Yahweh during the history of Israel's monarchy. Some streams of rabbinic tradition in the time of Jesus equated Baal with the prince of the demons, or Satan himself. The book of Joshua, in chapters 11, 12, and 13, call a town in this place Baal Gad. And Joshua conquered it during his conquests, but it was soon retaken by the Philistines, and then it remained a, a hub or a stronghold of Baal worship, according to Judges 3.3 and 1 Chronicles 5.23. The place, then, was historically a stronghold of demonic forces. But that's not all. 
when Alexander the Great later conquered the area in the 4th century BC, a shrine located in a cave was dedicated to the pagan god Pan. Pan was known as the shepherd god, and he was half man and half goat. This deity had the head of a goat and the feet of the goat and the torso and arms of a man, and it later evolved in subsequent times into the god known as Baphomet. Baphomet was allegedly worshipped in the medieval era by French crusaders bent on conquest and by the Knights Templar. It was later venerated by the Freemasons and to this day is venerated by many occultic societies. The image of this goat man is now the, uh, the, the, the official insignia of the Church of Satan, which depicts him with a pentagram on his forehead. So Caesarea Philippi was, as it were, a sanctuary of hell. It was a regional center of pagan worship since the time of Alexander the Great, and even before it, in fact, and its patron deity has now expanded to a global reach as many practice pagan worship based on this deity. Well, out of the ground of Caesarea Philippi protrudes a huge mass of rock forming a cliffside into the air. When I went to Israel several years ago, we visited this place and I saw it. To this day, you can see niches in the rock where the idol statues were placed all throughout it. The shrine of Pan was built into the side of the rock over a grotto, which is a large cave-like hole, and out of that grotto flowed a spring that went down into the depths of the earth. And the depth was so great that nobody could plumb it. It was believed that this place was literally a gate to the underworld, called Hades in Greek, or as some English translations put it, hell. It was a gate to hell. The people believed that Pan, their fertility god, lived in the underworld during the winter, down through that hole, and that he traveled up along this stream to visit the surface every spring. And so every spring they held an annual festival in which they practiced summoning rituals, prostitution, bestiality with goats, and child sacrifice. Sorry for the details there, but you need to know what the disciples knew when Jesus led them to this place. But there's more to it also, because around 20 B.C., Caesar Augustus gave the district to none other than Herod the Great, the infamous Herod. And in appreciation, Herod built another temple on this site made of white marble, and he dedicated it to Augustus. And this is what Josephus says about it, quote, Herod built him a most beautiful temple of the whitest stone of Zenodorus's country near the place called Panium, that is the region of Pan. 
This is a very fine cave and a mountain under which is a great cavity in the earth, and the cavern is abrupt and prodigiously deep and is full of a still water. Over it hangs a vast mountain, and under the caverns arise the springs of the river Jordan. Herod adorned this place, which was already a very remarkable one, still further by the erection of this temple, which he dedicated to Caesar. Later in history, a great earthquake of the region stopped up the spring of water. And so to this day, when you walk up to the grotto, you can see down through the hole into oblivion. It looks like a, a, an abyss. You, you cannot see a, a, a bottom to it. It looks, as it were, as if it goes down into the center of the earth. Well, this temple of Caesar became a hub for the worship of the emperor, who hailed himself as half man and half God. And so right next to the shrine of Pan was the temple of the Caesar cult. But that's not all. Then in 2 B.C., Philip the Tetrarch, brother of Herod Antipas, built a city in this region and named it Caesarea Philippi in honor of both Caesar Tiberius and, of course, in honor of himself. This was primarily a Gentile region. It was fraught with pagan worship. It was one of the places where Christians would later be obliged to offer incense to Caesar, in this case to Caesar Nero, and to renounce Christ under penalty of death. And Nero, and later the emperor Domitian, they were the first personas who the early Christians associated with the man that the apostle John called Antichrist. So Caesarea Philippi was known as a center for Antichrist worship. There was the gate to Hades, and that gate was depicted by the pillars of the pagan shrine to the goat deity, and that shrine was built into the side of a humongous mass of rock. You get the picture? It was here that Peter declared, according to Matthew 16, 16, parallel to our text, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now Caesar claimed to be the Lord of the world. Caesar claimed to be the Son of God as ancient inscriptions on monuments and Roman coins still bear witness to this day. In fact, at this time, the word gospel, euangelion, was in popular usage only in association with the supposed good news about Caesar's reign and Caesar's accomplishments. And thus, every time the Christians proclaimed the gospel, it was a politically charged term used in a socio-religious context that demanded veneration of the Caesar cult. And yet the Christians are applying it to Christ, the good news about the reign of Christ. And so here, in this very place, the, the apostolic confession about who Jesus is, the very heart of the church's confession of faith, is supplanting the deification of Caesar. It is throwing down the gauntlet at the feet of the powers of hell. 
It was perhaps even declared with the sound of Peter's words reverberating off the side of the rock where the pillars of the underworld stood. And so the great Christological confession is declared here over the very portals of hell. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 18, I also say to you that you are Peter. Peter, of course, speaking on behalf of all the apostles as representatives and foundation layers of the church. And on this rock, our Lord says, a wordplay on the name Peter, which means rock or stone, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So do you see how the, shed, the, the setting sheds light on the theology and the function of Peter's confession in the text? Supplanting the rock in which the gates to hell stood, Jesus will build his own spiritual house on a superior rock, the apostolic testimony about Christ. The church will prevail over the powers of hell. And notwithstanding the fact that these powers will be arrayed against it with sinister intention, the church will be indestructible until the end of time because Christ himself is its builder and preserver. And here he's laying down the foundations of it right in the midst of this fortress of evil. And notice in the metaphor, by the way, who is on the offense and who is on the defense. In the ancient world, gates were a defensive structure. So brothers and sisters, we are not to shrink back when the world wields its weapons against us. Whether it be antichrist systems of fallen human governments who, like Caesar, demand allegiance that can only lawfully be given to Christ or whether it be the influence of false religions and counterfeit evil ideologies. The church is called to confess Christ and proclaim him on the evangelistic offense. In strongholds of darkness and corruption, we shouldn't be afraid to declare the truth about Christ unashamedly in the public arena, to storm and assault the gates of hell, to rescue those who are perishing, to pluck precious souls out of the fire, to strategize and mobilize and advance God's kingdom by life or by death. That is what Jesus is implicitly commissioning here, Peter and the apostles and the church by them to do. So each of us should ask ourselves, when it comes to this battle, against evil, am I on the defense or on the offense? As we confess Christ and proclaim him, the gates of hell, our Lord assures us, they will be battled down. They will not stand. They will not prevail. The gospel will, in the end, emerge as triumphant over the devil and his antichrist. And so that's the setting. And let's look now at how the Lord 
drew this confession out of Peter. We come to the speculation, verse 13b. He asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? What was the popular opinion about Jesus? The speculations show just how much esteem and authority Jesus had in the sway of public opinion. Verse 14 said that they said, some say John the Baptist. Apparently, not everyone was aware that the ministries of Jesus and John overlapped, and they heard reports about Jesus only after John's death. In Mark 16, 14, Herod was even speculating and saying, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. We don't know whether that rumor originated with Herod and then passed on to the people or vice versa, but evidently it was a popular rumor at the time. Others said he was Elijah, the prophet of fire, who had been taken up into heaven in a chariot of fire. Malachi had prophesied, it was thought that Elijah would return. First century Judaism maintained a fervent expectation of the reappearance of Elijah. And Second Temple Jewish writings everywhere bear witness to this fact where they talk about how Elijah will come. And to this day among Orthodox Jews, you know, the, they leave an empty chair at the table during the Passover meal just in case Elijah shows up. Well, others said he was one of the prophets. This reveals how penetrating and insightful the preaching of Jesus really was. He taught with such authority that through his human voice, everyone recognized that they could hear the voice of God. And of course, Jesus was a prophet, but he wasn't just a prophet. He was more, much more than a prophet. And so the public opinions about him, they had inklings of the truth, but they, they all came short of it. Jesus is here raising the question of the ages. And our answer to this question, who do we say that he is? To be blunt, our answer is a matter of salvation or damnation. The most important question about you is how you answer this question about Christ. And the text is a solemn admonition to us that popular public opinion about Jesus always comes short. Into every culture into which his fame has been foisted, people cast him into a mold forged by their assumptions rather than submitting to the divine revelation he has given of himself. To some, Jesus is just a sage, a great teacher of wisdom. To some, he's a paragon of ethical ideals. To some, he's a guru, a guide to the path of pantheistic or panentheistic enlightenment. To some, he's a social justice warrior concerned for the poor and marginalized. Even many biblical scholars have got them all wrong. 
As Mark Strauss pointed out, the members of the blasphemous Jesus Seminar viewed him as a cynic-like philosopher promoting an egalitarian society without hierarchy or social distinctions. Others claim he was a political revolutionary advocating the violent overthrow of the government or a social revolutionary calling for a bottom-up peasant revolution. For Rudolf Boltmann, perhaps the most influential New Testament scholar of the 20th century, Jesus was a mere man who became a legend. And the key to discerning the quote-unquote real Jesus is to demythologize him by stripping the gospel stories of any feature of the miraculous. Then, of course, in, in Germany under the Third Reich, Jesus was cast with blonde hair and blue eyes, the exemplar of the Aryan race, as they called it, and appallingly also the ultra-anti-Semite. But then in America, even now under liberation theology, Jesus is cast with black skin and dreadlocks. There is no end to the misguided voices that fabricate a false conception of Jesus, casting him into the image of our idolatrous desires. Some proclaim a utilitarian or hedonistic Jesus. They see Christianity primarily as a means to obtaining personal benefits and happiness. In this system, Jesus is not the reason we exist or the absolute Lord of all, but the subordinated servant who exists for the sole purpose of making us happy. Others proclaim a mystical Jesus. The emphasis is on having an extra-biblical encounter, supernatural experience, all the while the careful exposition and study of Scripture, the sufficiency and the authority of the Bible are obscured. A Jesus is set forth whose primary concern seems to be to give his followers an existential experience with emotional sensations or a supernaturally induced series of charismatic manifestations, whether they be supernatural or psychological. Some promote a postmodern Jesus or a pluralistic, progressive Jesus. This false Christ's greatest concern is that his followers get along with everybody and that they never assert that anybody is wrong. The greatest law of the postmodern Christ is not you shall love the Lord your God with all your being, but rather judge not lest you be judged. His laws are amorphous, ever-changing with the culture. He teaches that love means the unconditional acceptance of every heresy under the sun. He demands unconditional tolerance of every atrocious lifestyle including sodomy itself. And he avoids mentioning hell. In fact, he has evolved beyond such rigid and antiquarian views as to believe in a hell, so he doesn't even really believe in it anymore. Well, others teach an insufficient Jesus. This false Christ will help you to be saved, 
but he is not capable in and of himself of actually saving you. In reality, he's a religious crutch that helps you to save yourself. He teaches that in addition to trusting him for salvation, you should also trust in supplementary things that complement his work or that achieve what, is, what, what he is powerless to perform. The plethora of perceptions about Jesus is as varied as is the pantheon of Greek gods in Athens. But out of this cacophony of voices thunders the confession of Peter. And that brings us to the confession, verse 29. You are the Christ. You are the Christ. Simple, succinct, yet profound and sufficient as the substance of our faith. The truth of this confession resounds through the ages as the core confession of the one holy, universal, and apostolic church. And with Peter's voice, we unite our own. And by doing so, we join the grand chorus of voices of all the saints in heaven and on earth. His confession is the bedrock upon which the church is founded. It is the bond that unites the communion of the saints throughout time and eternity. His confession summarizes the peculiar glory of Christianity as the one way of salvation, as the consummate expression of truth, and as the greatest revelation of the mind of God in the world. This apostolic confession is the litmus test of orthodoxy. 1 John 4.2 says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Then down in verse 15, John says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And then in 2 John 9, he says, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. But he who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. But what does it mean? What does it mean to confess Jesus as the Christ? Christ isn't his last name, as you know, it's his title. It means Messiah, for the Hebrew, Meshiach, meaning anointed one. There were three anointed offices in God's theocratic kingdom, prophet, priest, and king. And so to confess Jesus as the Christ is to receive him as the fulfillment of all that the prophets, priests, and kings of Israel foreshadowed as the administrative and redemptive agents of God's reign over his people. In the first century, the foremost notion of Messiah was that of a, a king, the king of Israel. It stems from the promise of the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David was called the anointed one. 
God promised that David's descendant would reign forever on his throne in righteousness. The king was the shepherd. The king was a provider. He was the warrior. He was the protector of God's people. Thus, the legitimate confession of Jesus as the Christ comes from the heart of the person who believes in him as the Lord their shepherd, as the provider of their salvation, as the warrior who conquers their sins, and as their protector from death and hell. But he's also our prophet. Our prophet. And he doesn't just preach the word to us like other prophets. He comes to us in the power of his spirit to indwell our hearts by faith and thus makes us to internally experience the efficacy of his word in our hearts. It is his revelation as the Christ disclosed to our minds, and in that revelation, it is that we experience the blessedness of the saving work of God. And that's why in Matthew 16, 17, after Peter confessed him, what did Jesus say? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The revelation of Christ, it is the final revelation, the saving revelation, the fullest revelation, the one that seals up prophecy and vision. And the one that makes the light of the knowledge of God to shine in our hearts. He's also our priest. They were also the Lord's anointed. But it's this aspect of his identity that the disciples didn't yet understand. And so Jesus begins to teach them with this prediction. This prediction. Verse 31. And he began to teach them. He began indicating a process. It would take them a while to actually learn what he was trying to teach them. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And as far as we can tell from Second Temple Jewish writings, there was no expectation among them that Messiah would suffer. The suffering described in Isaiah 53 was interpreted as referring to the nation of Israel, not to Messiah. But Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer. He must. Not that he should, but he must. That translates a Greek verb, day which means to be under necessity of happening, denoting compulsion of any kind. It was necessary because the Father had ordained it, and the Son willingly assumed this responsibility in the intra-Trinitarian council before the foundation of the world. It was necessary because in no other way could souls be atoned for except by the letting out of his blood. And it was necessary because the scriptures, which cannot be broken, had predicted it. 
You know, the Old Testament wasn't silent about this. In Genesis, we read in 3.15, the serpent will strike his heel, mortal wound. Later in Genesis, Jesus is the Joseph whose humiliation precedes his exaltation. In Exodus, he was the Passover lamb slain to save his people from death. In Exodus, he was the tablets of the Decalogue smashed to the ground over Israel's sin. And he's also the rock that struck to produce life-giving water. In Leviticus, he is the sin offering. And he's also the mercy seat over the Ark of the Covenant. In Numbers, he's the bronze serpent lifted up. In Deuteronomy, he is the cursed object hanging on a tree. In the Psalms, he's the Davidic king surrounded by dogs who pierce his hands and his feet. And he's also there, the priest that comes in the order of Melchizedek. And then in Daniel 9.26, he is the Messiah who shall be cut off, but not for sins that are his own. Yes, his death was necessary because it was foretold in the scriptures. And Jesus says in verse 31 that after three days he would rise again. That's a Hebraism, by the way. After three days can also mean on the third day. But he says after three days. That, that's the way he says it. And that's not a coincidental detail. Because this too was foretold. But the disciples still couldn't put together all the pieces of the prophetic patterns that had been outlined in their own scriptures. You see, in the Hebrew Bible, this phrase, after three days, it appears throughout. And it's a standard term for a time when God intervenes to save from death. Thus, when Abraham had been commanded to sacrifice his son, Genesis 22.4 says, says that Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place on the third day. It was on that third day that God intervened to spare Isaac from death. In Genesis 42, Joseph had put his brothers in prison for three days under threat of death. And then in verse 18, Joseph says, Do this and live, for I fear God. And then he let them out and spared their lives on the third day. When King Hezekiah was sick unto death, he prayed, and the Lord answered. In 2 Kings 20, verse 5, we read of God's response. Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Surely I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord. Deliverance would come to the Davidic king from his death sentence. When? On the third day. And on that day, he would go up to the house of the Lord. Jesus rose on the third day to ascend into heaven and be constituted the eschatological temple house of the Lord, fulfilling in his own person all that the house that Hezekiah went up to foreshadowed. Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, the prophet says, Come, now let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. 
He has stricken, but he will bind us up. In other words, he has smitten us in his wrath. He has punished us on account of sin. But then he says, after two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. Reversal from the death sentence of the wrath of God on the third day. Prophetic pattern. And perhaps the clearest of all the patterns is seen in the case of the prophet Jonah, who was in the belly of the fish and delivered from the death sentence. When? Third day. But the disciples couldn't see these details or make these connections yet because their vision of the scriptures, it was like that of the blind man in the preceding episode. It was still blurry when that blind man was partially healed. They couldn't fathom that these things would happen. And so Peter takes him aside to rebuke him. And that brings us to the rebuke. Verses 32 to 33. Jesus spoke this word openly, no longer an enigma, no longer in parable, no longer an extended metaphor. Now he declared to them clearly and literally the fate that awaited him. Peter understood something of what Jesus was saying, but he was unwilling to discern and comprehend it because he was unwilling at this time to receive it. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, but when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, why did he turn around and look at them? One of two options. Either the conversation was had privately, but but Peter was expressing the notion that was in the minds of all the disciples, which is definitely the case, but perhaps also Peter actually had the nerve to rebuke the Lord verbally, in the presence of the other disciples, and they overheard him. And it was such a serious error that Jesus needed to publicly correct Peter in the presence of the other 11. And so he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan. Some scholars have tried to soften what Jesus said to Peter there. And they they try to translate it, fall into subordinate line, fall in subordination to me, adversary. Because Satan can mean adversary. But that's not what he's saying. He does use the title for the archenemy of the people of God. He says, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Yes, they are harsh words, but they were aptly spoken because Peter, the mouthpiece of God for the church, lapsed into becoming the inadvertent mouthpiece of the devil. And what had been echoed through Peter was the reiteration of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Only this time it came not through the persona of the devil himself, but rather through that of the beloved disciple Peter. Remember when the, dem- when the devil attempted Jesus to bow down to him, to circumvent the sufferings of the cross, and the devil offered to exalt the Lord, instant exaltation, no need to suffer and die, no need to be further tempted. 
to receive the kingdoms of this world with all their glory. But Jesus, you see, in this case, he discerned the voice of the one that was coming through Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Any doctrine that teaches that the atoning work of Christ is not necessary is, according to the teaching of our text, of the devil. The cross is as necessary for our salvation as is drawing breath for our bodily life. Because the atonement, <laughs> brethren, the atonement is the heart and soul of the gospel. And so there it is. There it is, the crux of our confession. It's who Jesus is as the divine Messiah. And what he came to do is our king, our prophet, and our priest. Well, may the Lord give us grace to hold fast to this confession until our dying breath. Father, thank you for rescuing us out of the jaws of hell through the apostolic proclamation of Christ. Make us, Lord, a confessing people who boldly declare the praises of the person of our Savior. And help us to advance your kingdom into the strongholds of the enemy. And please do root out of our thinking any inconsistency whereby we still come short of grasping the full and comprehensive truth about Christ our Lord. Amen.